The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Well, um, if you want to turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to be in, uh, we've got in our final week of our Imago Day series. And in this series, what we've been doing is we've been looking at uh, God's Word and trying to think theologically about what makes us human. And the reason that we're doing this is because we live in a world where there are all of these cultural assumptions about what it means to be human. And these assumptions are very often opposed to God and to his word. And so there's inevitably conflict between God's word and between the the, uh, the, the modern secular worldview. And those conflicts arise particularly in contentious and sensitive issues. So over the past few weeks, we've looked at the image of God and sexuality on week one. Then week two, we looked at the image of God and gender. And then um, last week, we looked at the image of God and birth. We looked particularly at the issue of abortion. Today, we're looking at the image of God and death, the end of life, and in particular, the, the publicly contentious issue of euthanasia. Euthanasia is framed as the hastening of death of a patient to prevent further suffering. It's a medical procedure administered in most cases by a doctor to end a patient's life at a time and in a means of their choosing. And this topic is going to hit home for each of us in in very different ways. Maybe you've been present for the passing of a loved one. Maybe you've known someone who's suffered long under the pains of terminal illness. As we talk about death, there there are some here who are friends and family who have tragically taken their own lives. There are some here as well who know too well the dark clouds of depression and despair and the temptation to take your own life is a very close reality for you. Once again, we're not talking about topics that are divorced from reality. We're not just talking about things that are kind of out there. We're talking about real people, real pain, and the real and difficult decisions that people have had to make. If this hits home for you in in deep and difficult ways, uh, can I just once again encourage you to reach out, ask for help, uh, ask for prayer. Come and talk to me. Find someone else here in the church who who you feel like you can trust. And say, hey, could we just have a chat about some of these things? It's important that we are talking with one another about these things. So let's, let's pray and commit this time in, uh, into God's word. Lord, we, we trust you, Father. We trust you that you know what you're doing with us. We trust you that your word is good. And your word is everything that we need for, to follow, for understanding who you are, Lord. And so we ask God that... Uh, as we open your word and, and seek to bring this really difficult and, and hard-to-navigate issue uh, in the light of your word, Lord, and we ask, God, that you would uh, cause our hearts to be true and correct and, and lined up with, with what you call us to do as your image bearers, Lord. So, Jesus, we ask that you would be made big, Lord, in this morning. Holy Spirit, Magnify your word. Magnify the Son. Magnify the Father, Lord. That we would worship him and glorify our God and our King. 
the one who is supreme over all things, the one who is perfectly good. Who, who, there is nothing, Lord, that you cannot do. There is nothing, Lord, that you do not know, Lord, and there is nowhere that you aren't, and everything that you do is perfect in its goodness. So, Lord, help us to trust in you, Lord. We entrust ourselves and our time to you this morning. Amen. <clears throat> well, we're going to yeah, get back to Genesis one more time for this series, and I'm really hoping that as a church... We're starting to feel the immense weight that is behind God creating mankind in his image. That's what that word imago Dei means. It's the Latin for Im- the image of God. It's a, it's a massive and weighty truth that touches on so many different issues because it is the foundation of our identity, that we are made in God's image. That's the most important thing about our identity. And we're going to turn today to the moment in, in the opening pages of Genesis, uh, to that moment that our identity as image bearers became marred when sin entered the world. As we talk about this hot topic of euthanasia and death, it's important for us to get our heads around the origins of death. If you look at Genesis 2, God warned Adam. He says, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day you eat of it, you will certainly die. The warning is very simple. This will bring death into the world. Then if you turn the page to the tragedy of Genesis 3, it tells us that the devil entered the garden and told Eve directly that she wouldn't die which was just a straight-up lie. In the temptation, death is being denied. He said that she wouldn't die, but rather her eyes would become open and she would become like God. Now, the tragedy here was, was that she was already made in the likeness of God. She didn't need anything else to be like God. She was already made in the likeness of God, and yet the temptation was to elevate herself above the incredibly high station that God had already given her. And it says in verse 6 that the woman saw that the tree was good for food and delightful to look at and that it was desirable for obtaining wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. So the sin that introduced death into the world took place in Eve's heart before she reached out and wrapped her fingers around the fruit. The sin entered in her desires. It was in deciding for herself what was good instead of trusting God. She was seeking autonomy. That word autonomous, auto meaning self and nomos meaning law, literally means being a law unto oneself. I'm the one in charge. She was seeking autonomy. She was seeking to decide for herself what was good. Sin took place in the seat of her desires and delights. Her affections were diverted away from her creator and towards the things that he had forbidden. And it was in believing that wisdom could be gained by disobeying God. That when you become your own authority, when you reject God's authority, then you become wiser. That's, that's all what was contained in Satan's temptation. And as a result, sin came into the world. And with sin came its horrible counterpart, death. 
Adam and Eve didn't die straight away, but they welcomed death in that day as a certain reality and an inescapable reality for all people. The Apostle James makes short work of this reality. He says in chapter 1, Each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. The reason we have death in the world is because of sin, and the reason we have sin in the world is because our hearts have become corrupted by evil. Our hearts are sick. They desire the wrong thing, and we need new hearts. The culture that we live in insists that our desires are actually good things, that they are authoritative things, that they are the great arbiters of all that is morally good, and our desires should be articulated, our desires should be expressed, our desires should be affirmed, our desires should be embraced, and our desires should be celebrated, because our desires are who we are, according to our world. Look deep within, find yourself, that's who you really are, and the whole world should celebrate that. That's the path to happiness. But the Bible tears that theory to shreds. It's because of our corrupt desires that sin and death are in the world. See, death was not part of God's original created order. It was the consequence of the intrusion of sin into God's perfect world. Death angers God. When Jesus stood at the entrance of the tomb of his friend Lazarus, we see how much anger and grief death causes the creator of the universe. It says there twice in John 11 that Jesus was deeply moved as he stood at the entrance of that tomb. Now, our translations kind of gloss over that a little bit, but that's a mild way of translating that Jesus snorted in rage. He was furious. Death angers God. And yet, God himself suffered to the point of death. Jesus allowed himself to expire at the hands of men. He took the full brunt of the curse of sin. He took the full brunt of death on our behalf. And that changes death for those who trust in him. Death is no longer the end for the Christian. Although death is still shocking and painful, Christians have confidence that we will one day rise again after death like our Savior. But in this culture where we live, where this reality hasn't really taken hold of people, we have a somewhat complicated relationship with death. I believe in Western society, modern Western society, we don't really know what to do with death. I don't think we really know how to understand it. In this, it is this antagonizing and horrible Intrusion, and it's a cessation of everything that we know. It's the ultimate and mysterious end. And for the most part, it feels as if in our culture that we'd rather pretend that it wasn't there. We'd rather kind of turn a bit of a blind eye to it. We're actually rather disconnected from death when you think about it. In other cultures, and even previous times in our culture, death was a more common, uh, in-your-face reality. It was more common than that you would actually come face-to-face or, or know people who would have died. You, more common that you would actually have a closer experience with it. But today in the West, most people are shielded from that. It's quite normal for us uh, nowadays for a person to go their entire life and never see a dead body. This hasn't always been the case, and it's not the case in every culture as well. 
It's even becoming quite rare to have an open casket funeral. Today we have professions that deal with this end-of-life stuff, and we can kind of understand why. It's a confronting thing, and so we we ask these people to take, take care of that side of things for us. And when someone does die, we, we often will relegate our time of grief and, and remembering them to an hour-long service or so where we say some nice things about them, we remember them, and then apart from maybe the family, for, for everybody else, it's mostly just time to kind of move on. But we, we don't really know what to do with death. It's, compare ourselves to other Polynesian cultures, for instance. In Polynesian cultures, it's quite normal when someone dies... Um, that you would actually have an open casket in the house and, and the body would lay there in the house for several days and the, the family would gather around and actually bring out sleeping bags and sleep on the floor around the body as they mourn and grieve and allow the time to actually process this. Whereas we feel we're quite disconnected from it. And I think the reason why we're disconnected from it is because death doesn't really fit the narrative of modern secular culture. Here in the West, the the mantra is to live life to the full. Pursue all the pleasures of this world. Fill your life with experiences and possessions and you'll be happy. But then death invades that mantra and puts an end to it. In one moment, death, death brings the entirety of someone's life to an end. And it's inevitable for everyone. No one escape no one can escape their inevitable last day. But in the issue of euthanasia, which is what we're talking about today, what we have is a a kind of embracing of death, where people willingly welcome it. So what's going on here? Is euthanasia, our society, finally coming to grips with death? Is our cultural ignorance and the denial of death finally being undone by the practice of euthanasia? Well, no, I don't think that's going, what's going on at all. I think both the denial of death and the, the embracing and quickening of death are built on the exact same secular foundations. You see, one of the things that makes this an incredibly difficult issue to talk about and to navigate is that this issue is uh, couched in language of compassion. If you look on any pro-euthanasia website, you will see it framed as taking control of your final days, going gently, Dying with dignity. It's all about compassion and kindness and mercy and comfort. And, and those things are all really great things. On the, on the surface level, who is going to argue against kindness and compassion and, and mercy? Aren't they Christian ideals even? But this issue goes deeper than surface level. And what we need to understand about euthanasia is that euthanasia is not a morally neutral medical procedure. It is underwritten and founded upon secular assumptions and worldviews that both oppose God and dehumanize mankind. And these worldviews, these secular assumptions, don't have breaks. They will manifest and descend mankind into our destruction. So let's look at what I think are at least three of the underlying cultural assumptions, the, the underlying secular worldviews that underwrite and, and that underwrite euthanasia and that euthanasia is founded upon. Firstly, there is a dualistic assumption about humanity. We've been looking at this for the past few weeks, 
the, the postmodern phenomena that is that our identity, who we really are, can be located inside of us somewhere, in our thoughts and in our desires. That's who we truly are. In the system of thought, our true and authentic self can be found by looking inwards. And the physical world around us, including our bodies, no longer bears any kind of weight or meaning or authority or morality in our lives. And happiness in this worldview is only possible if we are able to discover and express our true self and if that expression of our true self is met with acceptance and celebration from the world around us. In a recent interview on the Joe Rogan podcast, Dwayne The Rock Johnson said that he had to unleash his inner self to find happiness. It's almost as if our bodies and the physical reality around us are seen as barriers to true happiness. This is the dualistic assumption about humanity that we exist on two planes, that our, our true self is inside and, and our bodies, just, they can be discarded, they can be manipulated, they can, they can be changed, we can do whatever we want to them and it doesn't matter. What this does, is this separation does, is it ignores the physical realities of existence and it places our value on things that are difficult to grasp or to get our heads around. The current iteration of the system of thought is called personhood theory, which we looked at this in a bit more detail last week when it concerned abortion. Personhood theory suggests that, a, that only persons have rights and a human can only be considered a person if they meet certain criteria. Now that seems outlandish and quite crazy, but that is legitimately what has been uh, not just debated, but actually uh, proposed by bioethicists in our world. And there are as many theories about what that criteria should be as there are bioethicists. But generally, the criteria for what it means to be a person is something along the lines of self-awareness or the feelings of pain or communication, the ability to actually communicate, or um, self-motivated activity, like actually acting in one's best interest, or the desire or the wish to defend oneself. And, and, and those theories are kind of put out, there's a bunch more as well, but basically the theory is if someone lacks those things, if someone doesn't meet that criteria, if they, for instance, if they can't communicate, or if they can't express a wish or desire to actually protect themselves, then they might be human, but they're not a person. This is what personhood theory is. That's the theory, and it's incredibly influential. It's not only used to justify abortion, as we looked at last week, but it's also used to justify the early termination of the life of an adult. It's asking the question, what makes someone's life worth saving? Is there a point where their health or their cognition has deteriorated, and so can no longer, we can no longer consider them a person worth saving. Now, just so we know, those are the exact same principles that the Nazis used before World War II to justify killing people with disabilities. So, dualistic assumption about humanity. The second uh, worldview, secular worldview, that underpins euthanasia is a materialistic assumption about eternity. Spurned, spurred on by uh, Darwinism, this cultural assumption is that we are merely the products of natural selection. We, we came from nothing, we go to nothing, therefore there is no fundamental or universal meaning or purpose to life. Any 
kind of meaning that we do desire then needs to be found in this life. It needs to be found within the, the bookends of, death, of birth and death. And so in this view, if you aren't enjoying your life or if there is some inhibitor for you for living out your dreams or the life that you want to live, then life isn't actually worth living anymore because you can't find meaning from it anymore and so life can be discarded. It is this materialistic assumption behind the 2016 film Me Before You, which is about a man named Will, who was once a healthy and active man, but became paralyzed in an accident and bound to a wheelchair. The movie is drenched in this materialistic idea. Will even says at one point, you only get one life. It's actually your duty to live it as fully as possible. The message of the movie is this, live boldly, Live well. Just live. But because of Will's accident, and even though his, he and his carer, Louisa, have fallen in love, Will can't accept that his life with a disability is worth living. It's not life anymore. And the movie ends with him travelling to Switzerland to be medically killed. The message is clear. There is a criteria for what makes a life worth saving, and a disabled person cannot meet that criteria. In response to this movie, a little girl named Ella French, Ella French, who, when she wrote an article a couple of years ago, uh, she was 11 years old. She is a professional wheelchair skater. She's ranked number two in the world for, w- for the WCMS. She wrote an article called Dear Hollywood, Why Do You Want Me Dead? She writes, You might not believe in God, but I do. And because of that, I believe in the value of all people. I believe we are all made in his image and likeness. That's why I believe all people are worth something. If you believe that people only get their value from each other, then people can take that away. But if your value comes from God, then nobody has the right to say someone who walks is worth more than someone who doesn't. That's an 11-year-old. I mean, we could just read that and just go home. That basically sums this up. The third uh, secular assumption underpinning euthanasia is, that, is the self-centric assumption about hierarchy. Like Eve, our culture believes that establishing yourself as an autonomous being, literally as a law unto yourself, is the only way to live. We want to decide what is good for us, not God. We want to be in control, not God. We want to dictate the terms and determine the, uh, the, the days of our lives and not leave that up to God. Euthanasia is an expression of that desire to be the ones who get to decide where and when and how something as significant as the end of our life will take place. In fact, uh, one of the main reasons, I think it's the main reason that people provide for requesting euthanasia is the fear of the loss of personal autonomy. It's something like 96% of people actually tick that box. And when it comes, to, uh, and when it comes down to things like uh, the pain that they're worried they're going to feel, that's, it's something like 25% of people tick that box. I, I have to get those numbers right, but it's something like that. The, 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 the thought is that with euthanasia, we can maintain our autonomy. We can take control of our own lives and dictate to the terms that we can play God. The group 
called Dine with Dignity. It's a Queensland group. makes this elevation of personal autonomy above the value of life really clear. Their principles of voluntary assisted dying are this. A, human life is of fundamental importance. B, every person, who has, inherent, every person has inherent dignity and should be treated equally and with compassion and respect. So far, so good, right? We can agree to that. But then look at C. A person's autonomy, including autonomy in relation to the end of life choices, should be respected. Can you see how critical this cultural assumption is that we have the right to determine our own path to the argument of euthanasia? That we are the ones who control, not God. We're the ones who actually... We we ignore the fact that God has numbered our days. These are the cultural worldviews and assumptions that underwrite euthanasia. They essentially say that when someone starts experiencing a certain level of pain or discomfort, or they lose the desire to go on living, or they, they are unable to live the life that they want to, then it is right and it is just to help them to end their life. There's no point in preserving it if they're not able to live life to the full. And while it might be promoted and largely accepted on the grounds of compassion and mercy, the worldviews that underwrite this particular uh, practice, like I said before, they don't have brakes. They chart a slippery slope towards an unhinged and unrestrained justification of taking someone's life. There is no obvious end or point to which our culture and our society will say, that's enough. And all we need to do is look at the various countries where um, euthanasia, sorry, euthanasia has been legalized to see this. And more and more, some very troubling stories are starting to emerge. <clears throat> in Belgium, euthanasia was uh, legalized in 2002 for people suffering from terminal illnesses. In 2014, so 12 years later, it became the first nation in the world to make it available for children between 12 and 18 with terminal illnesses. The only requirement for euthanizing, euthanizing an adolescent is if the child has asked for it, is aware that they are what they're asking for, and also has their parents' consent. In the Netherlands, which was the very first country in the world to legalize the practice, which was again in 2002, the law was broadened this year to include children under 12. Euthanasia is also available for parents of babies less than a year old. In the Netherlands, that is. You can see the trajectory of the slippery slope, and there's no sign that things are slowing down. Staying in the Netherlands, a doctor came under criminal investigation for slipping a sleeping drug into the coffee of a 74-year-old woman who suffered from extreme dementia. The doctor then asked the family to hold her down while she administered the fatal drug through a drip. The woman was not able to give consent. Eventually, the doctor received a reprimand and then retired early. Canada introduced euthanasia for those with terminal illnesses in 2016 and then broadened the requirement in 2021 to include those with serious and chronic physical, physical conditions even though those conditions weren't life-threatening. That didn't stop doctors from euthanizing, euthanizing Alan Nichols, though, in July 2019, who was struggling with depression and submitted a request to be euthanized. Despite his family's appeal, his request was approved and he was killed within a month. The only medical condition that he listed on his application form was hearing loss. 
And earlier this year, that permission was broadened again to include people with mental health issues. There is no requirement in Canada for a person now to even have a physical ailment for wanting to end their life. They can appeal to things like depression and anxiety. Dr. Madeline Lee, who is a Canadian doctor who has euthanized hundreds of patients, paints a vivid and somewhat ironic picture of the slippery slope. In, a bit, in an article that she wrote in the BBC in January, she recalls her first patient calling it a surreal experience. It was like stepping off a cliff, that first one, she said. Then time passes and it normalizes. There are now even reports in, of legislators in Canada arguing for the right for minors to be euthanized by request for mental health issues. Now, apparently, these proposals are at this stage being fiercely rejected by lawmakers, by policymakers. However, the case is allegedly there. Now, some people believe that by providing euthanasia, uh, it'll offset the number of suicides, that actually people who want to kill themselves anyway, um, uh, this provides a safe way for them to be able to end their lives. But the current research suggests that the rates of euthanasia actually don't replace the suicide rates, but just add to them, almost doubling them even. And very often, the suicide rates themselves increase in areas that have legalized euthanasia. This is not a morally neutral procedure like mending a broken arm or filling a tooth. It might be couched in language of compassion and mercy, but it is founded upon a secular worldview that denigrates humanity. It denies the lordship of Jesus and it stands against the God of the universe and a slippery slope will be followed. In contrast, though, the Bible provides a different and far better assertion about humanity. It provides assertions that, dis that arrest the descent of man's heart into the, the chaotic evil and pr it promotes the protection of mankind and the most vulnerable. And this is something that I think we need to have a great deal of courage with, church. Many people have been asking me over the last few weeks, well, they've been saying, you're brave for doing this series, considering our cultural climate. I've got to be honest with you, as I've been working through this, it's not bravery. It's just confidence in God's word. We have a better option. The Bible gives everyone a much brighter and more fantastic picture than any secular worldview can offer us. I'm not brave. Jesus is just better. What the Bible gives us, what the Bible tells us about our humanity is just simply, plainly, better than what the world could offer us. So just, let's just contrast a few things that the Bible teaches us compared to those secular assumptions and worldviews. Firstly, the Bible provides a holistic assertion about humanity. The Bible does not cleave mankind in two, focusing between soul and body, focusing on the, only on the soul and not the body. The Bible treats each individual human as a unified self. Like we said right at the very beginning of the series, when God made Adam, it wasn't that he made the essence or the soul of Adam and then went and found a body to, to shove Adam's soul into. No, it actually... Uh, it actually quite literally says that God formed the man out of dust. You can't have Adam without his body. 
And our bodies are not copied and pasted. They're not a random selection of parts. They have been formed by God. They have been made by His hands, knitted together fearfully and wonderfully. The Bible does not treat our bodies as as insignificant to who we are, but as intrinsic to who we are. When we reject our bodies or what they have to say, we are rejecting God. Secondly, it provides a redemptive assertion about eternity. When we look forward to a future eternity in heaven, it won't be as disembodied souls, but we will receive a bodily resurrection. Paul teaches us in Philippians 3 that our resurrection will be patterned after that of Christ who rose from the dead bodily. He says that Jesus will transform the body of our humble condition and into the likeness of his glorious body. Likewise, in Romans 8, Paul speaks of waiting for the redemption of our bodies. Our bodies are not going to be thrown away. They're not going to be discarded. They're going to be renewed and restored and revitalized. C.S. Lewis talks about this in his book, The Weight of Glory. He suggests that in eternity, even the dullest and most uninteresting person on earth will be transformed into such a creature that if you saw them, you'd be strongly tempted to worship them. The Bible does not denigrate our bodies, but treats our bodies with the highest honor and dignity as things which we will have and and which will be beautified for eternity. The third thing the Bible provides is a Christocentric view of hierarchy. The Bible places universal sovereignty in the hands of God. It says that in Psalm 90, He numbers our days. And if we're ever tempted to try and shrug off his rule, we must remember that he is the omniscient one. He is the omnipresent one. He is the omnipotent one. He is the omnibenevolent one. God knows all things, can do all things. He is everywhere all at once, and everything that he does is perfectly good. He is the one who has written our days. He is the one who has written our days for his glory and for our good. Therefore, what we endure today or tomorrow is better for his glory and for our good than if we did not. When God is king, everyone is a winner. Now this leaves us with a very obvious and um, critical question. What should we do in the face of physical suffering? What should we do when we are face to face with the realities of death slowly taking someone's life. What can we say to those who suffer? There's a few principles that we should follow. Firstly, life should be protected. It is no small thing to take the life of an image bearer, regardless of the suffering. God has created that person as an image bearer, which means he wants them to bear his image and give him glory. We dare not touch something that, someone that God has created for his glory because God is jealous for his glory. And we've, we've got to make this, ser- this clear. Sin is serious. And taking the life of another human being, regardless of whether or not the method has been approved of by the state, is still murder. And those who do so will have to give an account of this before the judge who knows all and sees all. Secondly, our world sees suffering as a dead-end horror that has no purpose and that actually inverts the purpose of mankind. 
But the Bible treats suffering as a redemptive process that actually grows and matures us. In Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says that we ought to rejoice in our sufferings because suffering produces endurance, which produces proven character, which produces hope. And you can bank on that hope because God's love has been poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. Suffering is not a removal of God's love for you, but it is an opportunity to hold fast to God's love in the midst of suffering. It is an invitation from God to draw near to him and and to remember and to receive his love in the time of his suffering, not to reject it. Likewise, the Apostle James says, to count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That the things which challenge our faith, challenge our, our trust in God, they are there from God to actually lead us into greater levels of maturity. Suffering is the pathway of sanctification. And the Apostle Peter reminds us of the eternal bliss to be experienced after suffering. He says, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Suffering is not without its own purpose. Now, sure, some of those writers are talking not just about physical suffering, but social suffering and cultural suffering, suffering for our faith and those various things, but the message is absolutely clear. It's not a dead-end horror. That God's purpose, God has purposes for us in that suffering. Furthermore, the world of psychology is cottoning onto this and beginning to reject the notion that a life without suffering is best for humanity. In what is now being labelled as post-traumatic growth, psychologists are discovering that those who have experienced traumatic life events, uh, dealing with trauma that was a powerful spur, sorry, dealing with that trauma was a powerful spur for personal development. It wasn't just a question of learning to cope with or adjust to negative situations. They actually gained some significant benefits from them. And this is not to mention the incredible advances of modern medicine in the field of palliative care. For most cases, a palliative care, strat- palliative care strategy can dramatically and even completely remove all pain from someone with, um, suffering from a chronic illness, making it possible for them to enjoy their end of life with a lot more comfort. If you've ever had any kind of experience with a palliative care team, you will know those people are angels. It is exceptional the amount of care that is provided for people. Thirdly, we need to keep death in its right place. Our world will often either ignore death because it doesn't fit the narrative of our best life, or increasingly it will embrace death because that best life can't be lived. Both of those options don't help us. We should treat death both as the consequence of the sin, of sin that it is. It's the thing that makes Jesus angry. And we should rage against sin. We should rage against death. It's not part of our Father's plan for us. It should anger us that people should die. We shouldn't just go, it's, you know, it's just okay. No, with that, it should anger us that death is the reality. At the same time, though, we can smile at death. Because for all of life's menacing aggravation against us, our Lord Jesus Christ has pulled out death's teeth. And he did this by his resurrection. Jesus truly truly died. He didn't just pass out. He wasn't just unconscious. He wasn't asleep. 
He didn't just disappear to another dimension. He died. His physical body died. And then he truly, truly rose from the dead. And all of Christianity hinges on that truth. If that's not true, then all of Christianity falls apart. But if it is true, then that contains for us the most precious and wonderful realities to enjoy and to live by. See, if it's true that Jesus did rise from from the dead, it means that Jesus beat death. In his resurrection, Jesus killed death. When he got up and walked out of that tomb, he dealt a mortal blow to death. He won. His is the victory. He is the one who gained victory that day. All of this um, came to a massive head for me in September last year when my father passed away. He had battled cancer for about seven years and for the last six to nine months of his life, his health deteriorated dramatically. He lost uh, use of his eyes, followed by the use of his legs, um, followed by other motor function, and eventually death took him. His whole body gave way. And this was a really difficult time for us as a family. It was a difficult time for me personally. But there were some things that I learned, some things that I can take away from it. Firstly, we had some truly, truly wonderful experiences in the last couple of weeks of his life together as a family. My sisters and I, we all went back to mum and dad's house for the last week of his life and we slept on mattresses on the floor and we just sat around his bed and we cried and we wept and we spent time together. It was hard and it was difficult and there were many, many tears. But there was also some precious and cherished memories in that drawn-out waiting period of pain that we would never have had had his life not been taken, had his life been taken earlier. And I mean truly precious things that our family, my family, will we look back at that and go, that was probably the highlight of our time together as a family with Dad in his wheelchair. Secondly, we saw and experienced firsthand the loss of autonomy and the endurance of suffering for my dad and for all of us. It wasn't an, an easy one. It wasn't a soft one. It wasn't like nothing. It was brutal. It really was brutal. Dad needed the kind of care that was tough and difficult. And I don't know what my dad was thinking when we washed him and changed him and rolled him over. But being the fiercely tough and independent man that he was, I think he would have hated it. I think he really would have been uncomfortable about it. However, grateful for it as well at the same time. I'm not, I'm not polishing and saying it, would have, it was great. I'm saying it was tough. And yet it was an honour and a privilege to love my dad like that with my mum and with my sisters. It wasn't all awful. It was a way of loving him that we had never experienced before and it actually deepened our bond with him and with one another. God's purposes for us in that time were deeper than us escaping suffering and pain in that instance. Third thing I learned was that due to some circumstances that were out of our control, uh, and I've shared the story before, the funeral director needed my help to remove my dad's body from his house. 
Suffice to say, it was a very confronting thing. Incredibly confronting. Death is confronting. Death smells. Death feels cold and stiff. There's no heartbeat. It's this confronting reality of this is not right. Here is a person who feels cold to the touch. He can't respond. There's no heartbeat. It's an undoing of an image bearer. But it wasn't traumatic. It wasn't oppressive. It was an honor. It was just a wonderful moment to, to consider God's promises for us about death. It gave me a category for death that as awful as death is, and even though death is the horrid fruit of the evil one who sowed sin into our hearts, death that day ultimately lost. Sin waged an epic battle for my dad's soul, but Christ won his victory for him. Reflecting on the realities of our corruptible and mortal bodies, being once and for all made incorruptible and immortal, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your sting? Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Jesus beat death. And then he handed that victory to those who would trust in him. Sin has been neutralized and death is no more. Yes, we will die in this life and death is awful. It is a confronting reminder that this world is not as it should be, but we will rise again. That is the guarantee of everybody who is a believer. That is the hope that we can have hopes on. If you're here and you're a Christian and you put your trust in Jesus, it means that death is, death is not the end for you. Death is the doorway to eternal life. And if you're here and you're not a believer, the, the, the kindest thing that I can say to you right now is that that is not your reality. You can't hope in that, in a, in a future eternal life, if you don't trust in Jesus, because there is no way to receive eternal life except through Jesus. And so if you don't trust in Jesus, then the, the kindest thing I can say to you is, Turn to Jesus. Come to him with the empty hands of faith. Come to him because there is absolutely no hope for you outside of him. That sounds bleak, but it's true. There is no hope for you outside of Jesus. Come and put your trust in him. Confess your sins. Come and say, I do not have what it takes. So I need you. Jesus has removed death's teeth. Death is a doorway to eternal life for every believer. The poet George Herbert said that once death was an executioner, but Christ has made him into a gardener. Our bodies will one day be planted into the ground, but they will rise again with newness of life. There's another poem by George Herbert called A Dialogue Anthem, and we're going to finish with this poem. The dialogue is between a Christian and death. And the Christian is saying to death, he's saying, come on death. Do your worst. You've got nothing. He's showing how we can smile at death. Let me read this poem for you. Christian. Alas, poor death, where is thy glory? Where is thy famous force, thy ancient sting? Death. Alas, poor mortal, void of story. 
Go spell and read how I have killed thy king. Christian, poor death. And who was hurt thereby? Thy curse being laid on him makes thee accursed. Death, let losers talk, yet thou shalt die. These arms shall crush thee. Christian, spare not, do thy worst. I shall be one day better than before. Thou so much worse, that thou shalt be no more. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church, located on the Sunshine Coast. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecenterchurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others but please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.